We are going to do the final session. Let me try to find my notes for this. I did. I didn't. All right, we're gonna do uh, session six. And if you want to turn somewhere in your Bible, at least initially, 1 Corinthians chapter seven. We First Corinthians chapter seven, and I'll do a couple of verses. They're in there uh, in your notes. And at least what I hope to do is lay down some principles, some foundations, uh, and then take a little bit of time to reflect on some of those pieces uh, in our last session together. So the title or the idea I'm trying to run past you uh, is I admit a little bit literarily creative. It's aunts and uncles in the household, uh, in the family of God. There's no such thing really, let's say as in terms of scripture, a spiritual aunt or uncle. It's usually fathers, mothers, or brothers, sisters. That's kind of the language that's used. But a little bit of what I'm trying to capture, at least as a theme or an idea, uh, what happens if you are single, if you don't have, let's say, natural offspring of your own, and uh, what is left for you? Let's say we've been talking a lot about gender roles. Does that mean single people are essentially uh, not gendered until they're either married or part of a church, right? This is, a, this is the kind of question that can come up because... <laughs> And I would say, I think from the first session, at least, uh, I, I want to establish that maleness and femaleness are the only two ways to operate in the world. And then the question is, how as a man do you engage in singleness? And how as a woman do you engage in singleness? Uh, and then what does scripture have to say about singleness broadly uh, in light of those two things? So uh, the first Corinthians text, first Corinthians chapter seven, uh, this is Paul giving advice uh, starting in verse six. And he says, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So Paul is single. He's writing to married folks in the church. And he says, I wish that all were as I am, because he thinks that, and he, he's right about this, uh, married people have different concerns, worldly concerns, that single people just don't carry. So he continues in verse 8. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it would be better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul's argument thus far is marriage is in some sense a defense against sinful, lustful temptations. So singleness is something that you ought to walk in, but only if singleness can be coincide with purity. It's kind of the argument. You can't be single and struggling with, with lust and sexual sin. In some sense, that is an indicator that you have not been gifted with, with singleness. Verse 10, to the married... I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who has an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. I'm going to stop there. Paul's talking about a situation on the ground where the gospel is impacting a pagan culture. And so husbands and wives who've been married uh, are now hearing the gospel for the first time. And one of the two is coming to faith and the other one isn't. And now the question being asked is, in that situation, given that I'm now married to an unbeliever, should I divorce that person? Do I nullify the marriage? What do I do? And his advice is actually remain married. But part of this advice to remain married is going to come back into his later argument in verses 25 and following, because he's going to essentially say that singleness in some sense is a gift unique to itself from the Lord 
that married, married people just will never have access to. She said in verse 25, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but to give my judgment as the one who by the Lord, by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So singles remain single, married remain married. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. And are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. For this is what I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short, and from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and let those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Now, Paul's long argument there that I wanted to read all of is because of the urgency of the gospel going forward and the world passing away, that should factor into how we live in this world. So to married folks and to singles, their ability to engage in the mission of Christ is going to be very, very different. Very practically, a single person has more flexibility and time on their hands than a married person would have, and vice versa. Married people have much less time on their hands. They have more constraints. Because if you're married, you're balancing not only your own schedule, but also the schedule of whoever you're married to. And if there are children in the mix, then you have to balance their schedules as well. In all of those things, discipleship and your ability to engage in the church becomes more and more diminished. Not, not because uh, that's a, a bad thing that you're, being, that you're married and having children, but now your discipleship ministry is oriented towards your wife or towards your husband, if you're a wife, uh, and towards your children and raising them up, and much less of your capacity can actually be exercised in the, the local church. But in the local church, singles actually have a vast capacity well beyond what married people have because they just don't have worldly concerns. They can they can sleep in their car if they want to. They can, you know, sleep in their house. They can crash on someone's couch. They have flexibility that married people just don't have. And that kind of freedom is a natural kind of freedom. And this world would say, with that freedom, what you should do is enjoy your singleness, go and travel the world, don't engage in any kind of serious discipleship or mission work because, you know, that stuff will come later. And what, what scripture says is actually benefit your singleness, profit your singleness for the glory of the kingdom in the same way that a married person lives in light of the kingdom and, a, and a, a children are raised in light of the kingdom, a single person should live in light of the kingdom, counting their singleness as a blessing from God and so, not something that is their own to steward however they please. Uh, God, if he's gifted you with singleness, has actually gifted you with that for a purpose, which is also the rearing of godly offspring, but in this case, in a spiritual sense. Uh, there's a, a wonderful uh, way to think about this. When Adam and Eve are given the great, uh, the cultural mandate, they are given the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So do it, cultivate it. This is, this is what they're given. So Adam is oriented towards the world. Eve is oriented towards raising up offspring. And then Jesus, when he leaves his disciples on this earth, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And this is in Jesus's, a Jesus summary of what God initially commanded all of humanity to do, the cultural mandate but it's baptized in some sense in light of the gospel. And now spiritual children are on the table as a possible way to do that. So if you're a single person and you are a, a single uh, woman, for example, all your motherly instincts and all your motherly qualities that you have access to are exercised not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of the church and for the benefit of spiritual offspring that could take shape in the light of adoption and non-natural offspring that you adopt into your family and raise well. It could also take, take form uh, in terms of raising spiritual offspring within the church. Let's say other mothers in the church who are, let's say, busier, 
or they are struggling with, let's say, multiple kids, a single woman who has all the same giftings and qualities of motherliness that she's been endowed with from creation should be able to come alongside that mother and help her to raise children and raise godly offspring. Women are, I think, uniquely gifted in that sense. And this even goes so far as to say, if, if someone comes to faith and in coming to faith, their family cuts them off, which is something we don't often see in the West, but is becoming more and more prevalent given what a Christian actually stands for in the world, that you'll be cut off from family, cut off from social connections. Well, who better to mother and to nurture all those children than single women in the church who can come alongside them, care for them, be hospitable to them, and raise them well, which is the kind of capacity that a married woman would not actually be able to do because she might have children of her own to care for. So a single woman has a capacity for discipleship and mothering that a married woman might not have additional capacity for. Similarly, single men ought to exercise their singleness, not in an effeminate way or a non-masculine way, but embracing their masculinity during their season of singleness. So they should uh, teach, they should pursue study of, of doctrine, they should guard the doctrine of the church, they should be good spiritual brothers to those who they interact with, uh, and they should, they should interact in every way as a man within the church, knowing that all the capacities and gifts of, of manliness that they have is more freed up than a husband who has wives and a wife and children to care for. A husband who has a wife and children to care for is in some sense investing much of his capacity and energy in the raising, nurturing, and protecting of them. And a single man can actually invest all his energy, time, and effort in the nurturing and care of the church, which is something a married man simply cannot do. This is what Paul means when he says that those who are married have worldly concerns. That's not bad, but they simply have concerns like putting food on the table and sheltering. And if you're a single man, you, you don't have concerns about providing for any, any natural offspring or a wife. You have concerns for providing for your spiritual offspring, namely those in the church who you're providing and protecting for. Again, you'll notice the emphasis is singleness is not a self-motivated thing. Singleness is something that you leverage for the glory of God in terms of making disciples. Now, there's another text that I listed here uh, in the notes, Matthew 19. That is a text that, where Jesus simply repeats this idea here by Paul, that marriage is not some frivolous thing anyone should simply engage in. I think there's two wrong views of marriage. One is that marriage is something that ought to be avoided and singleness is really more free than marriage. The other wrong view I think that Christians sometimes embrace is that marriage is something anyone should just yoke themselves to. Get married to the first person you find, marry them, and, and just, it'll be great. And Jesus says in Matthew 19, something like, well, if you get married, you're stuck with this person for life. You cannot divorce. And the disciples say, well, with such a high calling, who can take it? And he says, uh, if you can't, if, you, if that's too high of a calling, it would be better to be single. This is Jesus' conclusion. That's, that marriage is not somehow more free than singleness. It depends. And so within the church, what that's going to mean, especially in our culture in the church, is that your dating pool, uh, if you're a single person and you desire to be married, is way more limited than the dating pool of the broader culture because you, you now not only have to sift uh, someone who's, let's say, qualified in terms of provision, but you also have to sift someone who's, who's uh, spiritually wise, spiritually mature, shares your worldview, and you have these other things in common. So your dating pool has gone from the whole uh, world that you could possibly date now to those in your immediate local context and those who are sharing your values and Christian worldview. That's a much smaller dating pool. And what that means on the ground is uh, sometimes singleness is, is not something you desire to have for a prolonged season, but you are nevertheless faced with it by circumstance or providence. And thus, uh, you have to engage your singleness uh, in light of God's providence giving you singleness, uh, but, but not settling for some, so the first person who walks by that is willing to marry, right? I think especially for women, uh, you've been given uh, the unique gift of sifting before you are married 
who you actually want to submit to. You don't, the Bible does not say women submit to men. The Bible says wives submit to your husbands, which means she submits to her own husband and no one else, which is a protection for her. But it's, it's a bad thing if she, submit, if she just marries the first person she finds and now she's going to have to submit to him for the rest of her life. Instead, women, especially in the dating, uh, in, especially in dating and, and sifting, ought to exercise discernment and shrewdness with who they are going to marry because this is someone they're saying, I, I want to actually submit to this person's leadership for the rest of my life. Men often as well during your season of singleness, uh, if it's not a, a gift for you for the rest of your life, if, if you've just been given a season of singleness also by providence, uh, you ought to exercise that well for God, uh, for his kingdom, for its expansion. Uh, but also you ought to date and, and pursue women in a way that actually honors them, uh, that shows them care, that shows them respect. Um, and in a way where you're sifting for qualities that uh, you would like in a wife. Uh, many of these things we've actually outlined so far. So for example, a woman who shares the vision of, of motherhood and raising godly offspring, uh, that is a rare find in the church today because many women don't actually share that vision. So if you're a guy, you don't just want to marry a woman just because she says she's a Christian. You want to marry a woman who actually shares your worldview about raising children and engaging in culture in that kind of way. Similarly, wives. Uh, or women, if you desire to be wives, you would want to be de desire to date and marry someone who actually shares your vision for possibly rearing children. So you don't want to marry someone who's going to expect you to work a 40-hour-a-week job uh, and who's going to expect you to help pay the bills in some sense. You might want to marry someone who's working actively financially not to be richer, but to keep you where you can be materially provided for and raising children. I think both of those things uh, are inform our season of singleness. Now, if you're wondering why I'm talking about singleness, both in terms of the gift of singleness and in terms of people who uh, are just single for a season and, and may eventually marry, it's because in the Bible, uh, you have uh, married people and you have single people. <laughs> you don't have dating. You don't have like all these other categories that we have in our culture. So singleness, uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 19, uh, some can be eunuchs by self-choice, some are made eunuchs by men, and some are made eunuchs by the providence of God. So the, the point of that text Jesus is saying is he acknowledges the reality that people may be single for their entire lives, by providence or by circumstance. And in that case, they ought to embrace that as God's providence and, and run after it. But also, there's, there's a period of time, especially in our, in our world today, where, where marriage uh, is so delayed that someone who's actually not gifted with singleness ends up being single for a lot longer than they would prefer, simply because there's not a fitting partner for them to find and, and run after the mission with. And that ought to be, I think, walked after uh, in the same kind of way. You leverage the season of singleness that you have, but in, in many senses, you also, it's not wrong or sinful to pray for someone who God could provide for you so you could marry uh, and, and engage, in, engage in marriage in that way. I don't think it's sinful to be, let's say, frustrated that you're single. I think it would be if you took that to the point of, let's say, bitterness and anger towards God. So we're just acknowledging that, that single people have, uh, there's kind of two different groups of, sing, of, of single people, those who desire to marry and those who might not desire to marry. Uh, and Paul kind of leaves them both in the same camp of pursuing the mission of the kingdom uh, during that season of singleness. Now, in light of, in light of both of those things, uh, there's some, some practical on-the-ground ways to embrace singleness. Uh, and, and many of them I've at least alluded to, but a couple of things to think through in terms of all of that we've put forth in terms of maleness and femaleness. If you're a woman, how you engage in your season of singleness is going to be primarily to exercise your, your spiritual mothering, your feminine qualities uh, in, in the local church. You have a capacity to do that, that, uh, that a married woman just will not have capacity for. In that, in that vein and in that light, uh, 
that season of singleness is given to you, not for you to have additional time on your hands, but it's actually given to you probably because the church needs it or because the church has to grow because of it. I think about uh, Paul's admonition to the church in Corinth that if they have gifts, they should use the gifts as God has given to them. And singleness, in some sense, is a season of providence from God that gives you more time and more bandwidth to exercise whatever gifts you do have within the church. And I think that singleness should be viewed in that kind of way. There's capacity for missions work, there's capacity for discipleship, and there's capacity for relationships that just don't exist beyond that season of singleness. And similarly, uh, men, uh, that season of singleness is also time, but not your time. It's time that God has provided you with uh, so that you can turn it around and invest it back into his, his church, meaning broader capacities for discipleship, uh, broader capacities for, for training, for learning, sometimes for discipline in terms of seminary, education. Um, there's so many ways in which you could exercise a season of singleness faithfully and well. And I think we ought to consider that singleness is not just personal entertainment time. It's not just time for you to live your life large uh, and, and run after whatever you want. Singleness is, is, is just as much a, a calling as marriage is in Scripture. Uh, think about Paul in his singleness, who's able to go on so many missionary journeys, essentially because he's single. He doesn't have to go home and provide for a wife. As Max mentioned earlier, there's many men in the Christian church who, even though they had wives and families, they essentially lived their lives as though they were single and neglected their wives, neglected their families. There's many examples of uh, people who I would consider heroes of the faith who you find out they actually completely neglected their wives. And they, and they did so, and I would say sinfully so, and that's because they were trying to live as single people while they were married. They were not wanting to be burdened by the things that God actually had entrusted their stewardship with. Um, and Paul is an example of someone who actually can do all the things that he's doing because he's single. He's freed up to do that kind of thing. And so I think there's a faithful way to engage in singleness, which we ought to consider. And I think uh, above all in, in these things, if, if you realize your singleness is not permanent, if you don't think you're called to singleness, right, you're not gifted in that way, well, then you might want to consider, let's say, shrewdly sifting out who you ought to date, how you ought to date, and who you are looking for in a partner to marry. Uh, if you're a wife, all the qualities of a godly man and a godly husband uh, ought to be things that you put as a priority one on the list when you're sifting for, for dating and marriage. Those aren't things that can come after a good emotional connection is made and things like that. The worldview questions are the things that are going to predict the success or the failure of the marriage. Similarly, uh, men, if you are sifting for a godly spouse to, to be married to, uh, those same worldview questions are the things that are going to break or make the relationship. And in both cases, the, the sifting should be shrewd and careful, but dating should not be some prolonged season of life. Uh, I think especially in our culture, dating is seen as both a time to be totally single and totally entertaining the idea of marriage, but uh, neither in any kind of like serious capacity. And people kind of waffle between these two realities, dating without intention, single, dating without intention, single, and they just kind of do that for, for years and years and years. And I think that's a really unwise use of singleness. Now, dating should be careful, it should be wise, and it should be exercised in such a way that you know that dating is actually kind of a, a temporary, unstable state uh, and really, marriage is a stable state or singleness is a stable state, but dating really isn't. Uh, dating is uh, a temporary period of time to sift, is this someone who I want to get married to or not? And then once you have that question answered, you either get married or, or don't. Those are kind of the two outcomes to dating. And thus, uh, these prolong, this, this idea in our culture of a prolonged time of dating or we know we want to get married, but we're just going to get married three years from now because that's when uh, it makes sense financially or whatever. I think all of those things are 
outside of the category of any kind of biblical wisdom. Uh, in all these things, uh, we just want to return to the main idea, which is that uh, the family of God, the, the whole church, uh, is structured after a family. And in a family, uh, you have uncles and aunts, people who aren't the fathers and aren't the mothers, but who come alongside and, and partake in their fatherliness or motherliness, investing into whoever the children are. And I think in many senses, the gift of singleness is like that in the church, that you can come alongside fathers uh, and, and be good uncles and good male role models for the children that are being raised up in the church. And similarly, women, you can come alongside the children of the church and nurture them and mother them and care for them in the way an aunt would to, to provide nurturing care, not to usurp the mother or to replace her, but to come alongside her and love her and, and shepherd her in that way. And I think in both of those cases, you're now rounding out sometimes missing pieces in the family of God, where sometimes a, a wife uh, is the only convert in the family. She's trying to raise her children in the faith and the husband is is not a believer, well then the church ought to have men who can come alongside and be spiritual examples and role models for those children. And that often is going to be a broader discipleship need for single men to fill, whereas married men probably will have their own children to care for. Similarly, um, similarly to the opposite extent, you could have women who are coming alongside and, and mothering and shepherding uh, young girls in the church, showing them and teaching them what it ought to look like. And as a single woman has a broader capacity for that than a married woman does. Whereas a married woman is oriented primarily towards her own children and her own household. Single women are oriented towards essentially anyone who needs help within the church. Uh, they're kind of like the free agents, the ones who can go wherever needed, fit whatever is needed within the body, uh, but not in, in some way that denies their masculinity or femininity, but in a way that actually totally embraces it and exercises it faithfully. I think just on a personal note, there's so many good examples of this, I think, uh, even within our own church body. I know many of you who are single have, have exercised a great deal of love and care for myself and for Tara during raising of Calvin. Um, and that's been a huge blessing to us as a family to, to be able to still engage with one another, to have people who can come alongside and care for him. Uh, that's on a small scale, just like a microcosm of what I think that can look like 20 or 30 years from now within the body of Christ. Uh, you know, when you have hopefully more uh, children running around um, and, and singles to fill those gaps where, where they are needed. Um, I think it's a beautiful picture of what the body ought to look like where it looks more like a family and less like an organization that punch childcare to some official worker. And instead you have the singles who are engaging in those ministries and mission with the rest of the body of Christ. Uh, so with that, let me just close in a word of prayer uh, and then we will move on to generic questions, whatever you have left over. Father, your word is good. It is life-giving. And Lord, it is sobering to us who live in a culture that uh, has so many different opinions on your creation, what it should be used for, how to best invest time and seasons of life. Uh, Lord, we pray for your grace as we uh, consider what it means to be married or single uh, within the church. Uh, would you give us wisdom as we exercise uh, care and consideration with how we invest our time, uh, where we invest our time, in what ways we invest our gifts? Uh, would you help us to be careful uh, with... Uh, with our own gifts and abilities, that we would not overcommit ourselves, uh, but also, Lord, that we would not found to be idlers or lazy, that you would help us with wisdom and with care uh, be faithful to what you've called us to. Lord, I recognize that uh, singleness often is something that is more of a state of providence than a state of intent. And I ask for your grace for this body, um, that believers who, uh, who are walking faithfully with you would be given the grace needed for whatever the season of singleness is, however long it is, uh, however long you would keep them there. That singleness would not be seen as, as a curse, 
uh, but in some sense, something that you are walking alongside people in to faithfully guide them and give them grace upon grace to walk in it. We ask for your grace in all these things, knowing that the world has many temptations that await us as a body. And for single people particularly, there are so many temptations out there. We ask that you would keep your people and guard them and shepherd them well. Pray this in your name. Amen.